0: Welcome back to another episode. In this episode, we talk about the struggles of going from just a solopreneur, whether it's just yourself, where you know you can depend on yourself, things are going to get done, and you don't have to worry about managing personalities and emotions, to transitioning to a practice owner now of a team, how you build a team, how you motivate the team, how you keep a team, all these things in this episode we discuss and how difficult it is. Stay tuned.
1: Are you a physical therapist who wants to pay off your student loans, gain financial independence, and have true autonomy in your work and your life?
2: The best way to do that is to open your own practice. But how? What are the steps that practically guarantee your success?
0: Well, that's what you're about to learn. The Performance Doc Academy podcast is your audio blueprint to opening your very own physical therapy practice. So let's go.
1: Welcome to part two Of growing pains. I feel like part one was basically all about the team. As Karen was like, my wife was like, why why'd you only talk about the team? I was like, because team building is like the biggest growing pain every (laughs) business owner has. It's like 90% of everything. And then today we wanted to talk about essentially like, okay, great. You hire the right person. Whoop-dee-doo. Now you got to manage, which is really a terrible word. You have to lead this person to victory now. And, and help them become integrated into your mission, your vision, what it is that you're trying to do in a way that makes them feel valued and helps them to grow as an individual and helps your business to grow, which ultimately is, is, is really part of business growth. Because I mean, we could talk about marketing when it comes to business growth, but that's a whole other thing. This is more about internal growth, really, because that's where most of the pain points are. You can always get better at marketing, but if you can't manage your team, you're going nowhere.
0: You're right, Jared. If you think about it, that's only half the battle, which is hiring the right fit. Uh, it's our job job, and goal as practice owners and um, employers is to integrate the right fit, right? And how do you go about doing that? And I think it, it, it's, it's, it's really challenging. And I think um, what we've learned and we're continuing to try to improve is this Onboarding process, right? Like the onboarding process, this orientation process, and not just saying, oh, "Hey, just shadow for a few days, we'll get you some patients, and you just go on your way." I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think um, this onboarding process, what we've been working on, I think is going to help us. We've gotten better each time. I can say that. Uh, but this this next time, our goal is to say we're going to have, we're going to use Kajabi and use like almost a course, right, on our values, a course, like a course, but just tutorials on uh, that help people, take people step by step in regards to how we got to where we are, what we value, what we're trying to accomplish. And then, what I made a mistake on was always being the, the voice that they learn from. So Jared, instead of saying, okay, I'm going to teach you what, you know, all the things that I learn and put them into the system in which I, the way I treat, I'm going to change that and say, I want them to take the same continuing education courses that we, Carrie and I have taken, which are foundational
1: mm-hmm. in
0: how we treat. So therefore, when they come back to us in regards to if it comes, if, it was, if it's to discuss questions or different things about what they've learned then we're having a conversation where we're all on the same page as opposed to we're teaching we like this teach this idea of teaching 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 unfortunately a lot of the clinicians feel like they know a certain amount already so they're not they don't want to be taught or told they would rather learn even if it's the same material that you're teaching them that they're gonna learn from by by paying to go to the course, at least it's a different voice, mm. right? A non-threatening voice, right? It's to not their, their boss, right? right. It's not right. their it's, their it's not their boss. And that's gonna change everything. And so that's what we decided to go with, and um, we're looking forward to it because you get a chance to now say, okay, well, like they understand. And I and then we made sure we told them ahead of time right this is what we are this is how we practice these are the courses in the first year that you will have to take um, just to get on the same page feel confident we can have more you know we can explore um, afterwards but I, I, I it goes back to and, and Jared I know I'm going on and on but the more and more like the more and more we um We've had these experiences. It makes sense when, did I ever tell you the story where I got fired before I got hired? Did I ever tell you that story? You got fired before you got hired? Right. And I'm going to tell you why. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Coming out of school, You didn't even get
1: hired. They just fired you. You walked in the door. You were just like, you're fired.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It comes comes like this. Well, I was coming out of school and I was, uh, was, uh, you know, I'm getting ready to graduate. I'm doing interviews, phone interviews. And i never forget, I was so tied to SFMA. Like, it was the best thing since sliced bread. Great cook, this algorithm, how to assess. And so, that's what I had to adopt it. And, I was, and so, on the phone interview, I was talking to a practice owner who the practice is a manual therapy-based practice, meaning that they all have taken this residency and fellowship. And so, my question to them was, will I be able to use SFMA? And he goes, yeah, uh, sure, but we we all like to have, we we like our therapists to go through this training so there's a consistency in the care that's provided as well as uh, continuity in how we all treat, right? And I said, yeah, I I get that, uh, but um, I do want to have a certain level of autonomy and I want to be able to do these things. So he said, okay, well, I understand that. What we'll do is let's schedule an interview. And he scheduled an interview. And I was like, all right, great. Looking forward to it. Jared, I promise you, and Carrie is my witness. No more than 10 minutes later, he called back and said, you know what? I've had some time to think about things. We are going to pass. And (laughs) we wish you the best of luck. And at first I was like, man, you know, we ego-wise, like, well, they're lost. I was getting ready to bring the rain, the pain, whatever. Like I was, I was gonna bring it. They were getting like a very motivated guy, but what they learned and what they already knew was that because I wasn't going to be able, to, they were gonna have much more difficulty integrating me into their, in their system, right, and into their practice. And so, fast forward to what we're talking about, where okay, if you're not gonna be on board with doing the SFMA or whatever the two courses that we have in which we want you to learn which are our principles, then you're not gonna be the right fit. And if you are, then there's gonna be continuity and a certain consistency in the service that we're gonna provide under the Performance Doc brand. And so that's where we got to with this onboarding process, which is a big step before they even get to all the other stuff.
1: I, I like the idea of not feeling as though all of the education that you provide your new hire needs to come internally. Because, like you said, it, it it almost sounds like it's a dictum, like it's being it's being mandated uh, that you learn my system and you're going to treat right. my way. And the moment they start thinking that, the autonomy's gone. But if, like you said, it's an external voice, then they're learning essentially components of your system indirectly, which you have then gone on to synthesize. But they then are seeing that this way of treating exists out in the world. You didn't make it up. So it's got some credence to it and uh, some credibility. And that it's not like they're doing it for you. They're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And they're learning it from an external source that has credibility in the area that that they're teaching. So essentially the takeaway here for me that I'm hearing is that While it's important to try to instill a certain culture, which of course can't be taught by somebody else because it's your culture, the clinical education component, outsourcing that to whatever degree you possibly can is probably a good idea rather than trying to teach your new hire everything on your own. And then you being the bad guy, because then it seems like you're going to do it my way or the highway, which is never really a good starting point (laughs) of a relationship (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, and also, like, if you want, you want them um, to have the same effort, I guess, and teamwork, like, you want to instill all that in them and then try to also instill the clinical skills you want them to have. It's just a lot thrown at somebody at one time, I think. So if yeah. you can outsource any of it, it's probably helpful to not – the voice not always be you that they're getting it from.
1: Now, one of the harder things to teach, and we've talked about this in a previous episode, so I'll just just remind our listeners about it, is the difference between the head therapist and the heart therapist. And that, uh, for those that don't know, um, this is just a distinction that I made up a long time ago because I had a realization that I was hiring people all the wrong way. And there's, there's two kinds of therapists. The head therapists are therapists that wake up in the morning and ask the question, what problem can I solve today? They love solving problems, but the heart therapist wakes up at the morning and says, "Who can I help today?" It's all about the person. And if they weren't a physical therapist, maybe they would go into something like nursing or becoming an EMT or something like this. Just some—they're motivated by the by, by by their heart, by wanting to help people. And um, I know Leon, I, Carrie. I don't I don't know what you are, but I I know Leon and I for sure. Are our head therapists? I mean, through and through, right? I mean, we love solving problems. <laughs> Carrie, what, what if you were to say, if you had to pick, what would you, what would you be?
2: Uh, I'm definitely more of a heart therapist.
1: Definitely. I'd agree. Like, you, you could, could you, could you stomach working inpatient? Oh yeah, I've done it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right? I mean, there you go. I mean, like, head therapists will not work inpatient. Like, we just have no, <laughs> we just have no interest in it whatsoever. It's like you know, well, what it's I mean? very like,
2: mundane. Like, it's very much like, like it's easy to. The, like okay i'm going to get this person back to function right i got to get them
1: out of the bed so they can get out of the hospital right you don't have to figure anything out i mean it's like <laughs> it's, i mean you do a little bit but but, not, but really. not a lot Not really yeah so so you got the head therapist and the heart therapist right and it's and so okay so early er, early on when we opened our business i i hired head therapists cuz that's what i was i was like okay great i'll just hire people like me everything'll work out not a fucking stupid idea because it's almost impossible to teach a head therapist to have a heart. It's almost impossible. I mean, you and I, I as I, you, Leon, and I do an incredibly good job of having a heart on purpose with patients. Like, mm-hmm. but it's not why we wake up in the morning. If there was no cognitive challenge to the job, we'd be bored as hell and we'd want to do something else, right? But we we can make a patient feel good about the relationship. We have good interpersonal skills with patients. So it doesn't matter. We have the heart skills. But let me tell you, a head therapist who doesn't have heart skills, who doesn't have the soft skills, it's, I have found personally, it's almost impossible to teach that. It's so much easier to hire a heart therapist who just wants to help people and give them the skills of a head therapist, give them problem-solving skills, send them to Uh, to courses so they can develop those head skills so long as they have the motivation enough to, to actually learn the material. And I find that patients love heart therapists. Patients bring, you know, like boxes of cookies to heart therapists, like heart therapists get a lot of cookies, but head therapists, we don't get that many cookies. We get a lot of referrals, but not the cookies. You know what I mean? Because it's just, it's just not who we are. And so, When you're hiring somebody, okay, let's say you hire a head therapist because you need somebody technical on your team, right? So now here's the challenge. You have somebody who has a head inclination, they like solving problems, and you can send them to courses, great, that makes them better at the head part, but how do you get them to have a bigger heart? How do you get your team members to care more and show patients that they care and grow as a caretaker not just as a clinician. If that if that was the challenge, how do we become successful there? That's a tough
0: one yeah. because yeah. it's the op- it's the same challenge for a heart therapist to um to to get better sometimes, right? Like to to really put the effort into getting better and doing more than just Conversation. Your heart therapist is the nice therapist, but it's not a compliment, right? Like, Jared, I don't, don't call me nice. I'm not a nice therapist. I want <laughs> to be. Nice. I want to be a great therapist. I want right? to be a great right, therapist, right? People, patients leave a nice therapist to find a good therapist, a great. Spoke, therapist, spoken
1: right? like a true head
0: therapist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and
2: it, so, no, I was gonna say, it's really it's a balance yeah. and. You have to find, like, there has to be a little bit of both in somebody, I think. Mm-hmm. I think what Jared is saying, he's had a lot of trouble in hiring head therapists initially and then them not having any heart. I right, because it's, too, because it's harder of, to
1: teach them to, yeah, to have I a think heart. We've
2: had a little bit of the opposite. Like, I feel like we've hired the heart therapists, and then not they don't have that drive to, like, want to get better at what they
1: mm. do. Um,
2: mm. And so, and not only that, but I think I would – Imagine that heart therapists have a lot more emotion, <laughs> and yes, problem solvers don't do well with a lot of emotion. Uh, so I think Leon struggle <laughs> is managing heart therapists because of right. that.
1: Right. Now, okay. Now I'm looking at the word that I have written on my board here as a note, which is the word praise, and and we, <laughs> we talked about this. <laughs> Leon's laughing his ass off right now. So we talked about this, and and it is absolutely something that headstrong owners fail to do well. And when you have, uh, therapists in general can be a sensitive breed, some of them. Uh, And the more of a heart therapist that they are, the more sensitive that that, that they can be to feedback, uh, both positive and negative. And if we're going to take a heart therapist, for example, and get them better clinically, we need to give them feedback because they're not naturally going to get better. They have no inclination to technically improve because it's not important to them, or I should say it's less important to them, Mm -hmm. than the interpersonal relationship that they can make with the patient. And they feel as though success is determined by the strength of the relationship that they make with their patients. And the stronger the relationship is, then the, the, the more successful they are being as a therapist. A head therapist does not think that way. A head therapist, of course, is motivated by things like functional outcome measures, range of motion, strength, uh, you know, vast scores for pain. Like, that's what motivates a head therapist is outcomes. It's like, look, you're getting better. You're returning to your sport. You're able to do this. And patients are happy with that. But in order to to be successful in that way, you need technical skills. You need to be able to technically do things. So here we are. We're trying to get our heart therapists in order to have better technical skills. To do that, they need feedback. But as a head therapist, and I will say that most business owners tend to be head therapists because it takes a head therapist to stomach the difficulty of running a business and being an entrepreneur. Most entrepreneurs are problem solvers and are very cognitive in their approach. So if you're a a, a business owner and you tend towards being a head therapist, you will likely struggle with heart therapists in your effort to improve them because you will focus your energy on pointing out what they're doing wrong. And then you will say, okay, I noticed that you did this. In the future, it would be better if you did this. And then you'll have better outcomes. And I know this is something that you've run into, and I've run into it as well, is giving the feedback in a way that is not productive for a heart therapist. And you've had heart therapists on team, and you've given them feedback, and sometimes it didn't land as well as you'd hoped. So would you mind sharing a little bit about that? and what has changed over time in your approach that has made your uh, uh, ability to um, improve your therapist clinically better?
0: Yeah, um, that's a loaded question. I always have to start back with, and I think it's because we are creatures of habit or creatures of what we've experienced, right? what worked for us. And so um, as a, head therapist i learned best by jared if i was mentoring you to say hey leon that's not it or quizzing me on the spot hey what's the what's such and such, such, such and if i didn't get it i didn't mind looking confused and getting it wrong but i tell you one thing the next time you ask me that question or i'm gonna be on point the next time you ask me a different question like it's that drive it's like you know what I, all right i'm gonna get better and the whole time, I didn't consider the emotions of feeling embarrassed in front of a patient or feeling taken back. But that you challenged me in a way that uh, I seem, you know, almost unprofessional because it wasn't done in a way that was constructive. It was in a teaching moment. And, right? and so there was no, I didn't get lost in how it was delivered. I accepted, I, I didn't get, the message didn't get lost in how it was delivered. Right? I was always able to receive the message. So fast forward to um, when I would have these heart, ther- heart therapists, they, uh, the idea that, and I think what the heart therapists and also just the generation coming out are um, running into is that I think they're so used to getting good grades because what they would do, Jared, they would study, for, they would study their notes their PowerPoints that they were given in grad school, even in undergrad. And all they had to do was study that. It was black and white. So therefore they brain dump on the test and they would get the good grade. So there was no other variables to consider in order for them to get something right. So they're used to getting things right. I, I don't even
1: think it's just that. I mean, I definitely think that what you're saying is true, but I think it's also the very open-ended praise that they would get from their parents. Mm, and okay. you know, there, yeah. there was actually a New York Times article about this. I think it was either in the New Yorker or a New York Times um, about the dangers, and this, and this article came out about 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, about the dangers of open-ended praise, just telling people they're great. You know, just telling, <laughs> you're amazing. You're an amazing yeah. child. You're an amazing person. Everything you do is wonderful. And, and not being specific in praise. And what ends up happening is, what they found through, through some of these studies was that these kids that were growing up with this open-ended, nonspecific, uh, very vague praise had a diluted self-perception of how well they were actually performing at specific tasks. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, when faced with actual criticism, had no coping mechanism for that because they were so used to the praise. And, I'm, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to diss the younger generation because it's not even their fault. If anything, it would be the fault of the generation of us and our parents who are now raising the generation that we have, who are unfortunately mm-hmm. not being specific in their praise or specific in their criticism. And it just becomes this, you're amazing, you're great, and and everything that you do is wonderful. Everybody, It's the whole everybody gets a trophy thing, right. right? So it's the grades, which is the quantifiable component, and it's the praise, which is the subjective, non-quantifiable component that I think creates this self-perception of I can do no wrong, and it's been told to me that I can do no wrong, and it's been proven to me in school that I can do no wrong. What do you mean I'm doing it wrong?
0: Mm-hmm. Doing it wrong, but also... Uh, not not that I'm, that I'm like, in school that they're doing it right and that they uh, they are good enough right like this is this, this idea of like I am good enough like I've, I've proven myself my parents tell me I'm good enough I, in school my grades they validate that you know uh, I think but when you get into treating on your own I didn't like when he said it uh, and I think it's kind of it's not as black and white what one of the uh, former mentors would say when you graduate you're only good enough not to hurt somebody or injure somebody or yeah. you know to do, yeah. do something yeah. here, that kind of thing and at first I was like oh man I, you know I got my DPT I just passed the boards I know more than that you know I can help people but I understood now I understood I understand a little bit more what he means meaning there's a process to getting better right you have a foundation that unless you foster and continue to build upon you are going to have just the basic set of tools right in order to work on patients and to get patients better and so when they come out of school or even in their last two rotations they don't seem to grasp that like they, they seem mm-hmm. to think that they have like you mentioned with social media their resources and the way the DPT now, you know, we are doctors. We're doctors of movement. We understand. We own this. Like, we are doctors. They take that badge of honor and they almost come to the realization that they have made it and they are great. Right? They mm-hmm. are. They reinforce what they have been told. But in a, at a higher level because of the accolade or the certification or the, the diploma that they currently hold now. And so there's no, when they first graduate, there's no rookie period. I'm already good enough. Like you're not a rookie. You come out good enough, right? Right. There's no learning, and there's no like you don't. There's no veteran status. I'm as good as Jared because I'm I'm now have my DPT, Mm. and and the idea now when you try to teach these people, um, I am very straightforward. Right. If it's not good enough, it's hard for me to sandwich anything. Like I don't have any bread for you. I don't have any meat for you. It's hard for me (laughs) to sandwich everything, like the good stuff and all this. Like there's nothing there. I have no nothing. Like I have nothing to really tell you, other than the fact that this is what I've seen. Uh, This is where we're looking to go with certain things, and this is why we did such and such. Um, You have any questions? Let's go over it, and let's just work on that. Jared, there's, there's nothing, I don't need to dress that up. I don't need to put a suit on it. I don't need to put but, a dress but on that's it. The problem I don't need to put manners is, on right, it. Right, right. Right. I, I, like, it's just simple, right? So, and uh, they need to be able to accept that to some degree.
2: Yeah, but I think like, that's the thing, and something we've learned again through all this self improvement and self discovery is like Leon's very focused on the what, right? Mm. But so many people are focused on the how, like the how it was delivered. Like even him just saying those words of, like, you're not good enough. Like if he said that to somebody, forget about it. Like that, a heart therapist is, is going to be crushed.
0: Right, Des- it can be destructive. So
1: I've
2: never like, said that not a good enough. I've, like, I've, told, I've told
0: someone that when I first graduated, I realized um, looking back at it, I wasn't any good, and they just <laughs> the person just graduated. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah but I, like, I did say I want you to be better than I was. Like that's what so it
1: was. Like, but I, I think they're just hearing like I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. Yeah, not yeah, good I found I, fa- I found I found one of the New York Times articles on this. If you if if, if you're listening and you want to Google it, it's called <laughs> Are You Overpraising Your Child? All those good <laughs> jobs might be undermining kids' independence and self-confidence. This actually wasn't the article that I was thinking of, but this is another article <laughs> another uh, in, in the New York Times that that talks about that. And so yeah, so so on one hand we have just open-ended praise about how amazing somebody is, is 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 not is not the way to go. And then on the other end of the spectrum is the hypercritical, no bun, no meat, no icing, <laughs> no potatoes, nothing. No man you're, you're, you're gonna you're gonna eat this with with a, a, a hell a healthy helping of dirt. Um you suck <laughs> and you need to get better, right? So so we need to find the balance in order to help people grow. And so we know that if you, if you know, as, as a business owner, you have a heart therapist in front of you, you know that you need to bias your communication on the side of healthy praise. And, and the praise that you provide them needs to be specific. So you can't just say, great job today. That's not useful praise. Um, that doesn't help anybody get any better. It maybe will make them feel good for a second. But if you say to them, I noticed today with Sally that you spent a little extra time on your repeated movements when you were doing your McKenzie-based exam to make sure that you really teased out whether or not this patient was flexion-sensitive or extension-sensitive. I really liked how you did that. That's a very specific piece of praise that then motivates the person to say, ooh, what else can I do that my boss is going to notice me? And Mm -hmm. so being very specific in your praise is is important. Now, we can't always give people praise. Sometimes we have to be critical and tell people that what they did maybe wasn't the best idea. For example, you have somebody, let's say, who's got uh, stenosis And you're going to go and you're going to stretch the living snot out of their hamstrings, um, which doesn't really work because you you need to essentially get them into a posterior pelvic tilt on purpose because there's not much else you can do, whatever. So, okay, it doesn't matter whether you believe in this concept or not. Let's just say (laughs) this is what you're trying to teach somebody how to do. And you have a therapist that takes all their stenotic patients and just stretches their posterior chain as badly as they can, even though that person's posterior chain's not tight because they're already posteriorly tucked because they're trying to open up the frame. Okay, fine. You know it's wrong, let's just say. How do you tell somebody that that's wrong? Because they haven't shown you the correct behavior yet. They haven't done it right for you to go and say, hey, when you worked on that person's iliopsoas and stretched their hip flexors out, that was really great because that person has lumbar stenosis. They're not showing you the correct behavior. So how do you give them the negative feedback in a way that they're going to accept? And I learned this from my wife because she does corporate coaching and she, she teaches a lot of this concept of... Uh, how do you give people feedback and the way that the, that that she teaches other very high level professionals to do it is to always give them always give people balanced feedback as much as you possibly can always tell people two things that they're doing well for every one thing that you're about to shit on and so for you might say to somebody listen I really like the way that you communicated with Sally and told her everything that you were about to do. And I really like the fact that she looked very comfortable on the table uh, when you set up that stretch. My only piece of feedback would be, and then you fill in the piece of feedback, so that when you're working with somebody who is going to be emotionally attached to what it is that you're telling them, the amount of positive feedback that you're giving them in every interaction outweighs the negative feedback that they're receiving. This seems to have some sort of cumulative effect um, and a buffering effect whereby now the negative feedback doesn't feel so negative anymore. And because you're accumulating the positive feedback, it's like putting money in the positive feedback bank. So even though they do have to learn to deal with the negative feedback as a whole, they're construing you as being a more positive person that they're having to interact with on a daily basis. I, I found that with the heart therapist, this, this approach is, is an absolute must because even with the best intentions, even if your goal is to make them a better clinician, even if your goal is to help them help patients, if it's only negative, it will just come across as, I'm a failure, I'm not a good person, and everything that i do sucks and you know what fuck you for telling me <laughs> you know? yeah
0: and you know it's interesting uh I, even to go off that and carrie made a great point it's not that i was always negative carrie said you know how, you know how the saying the uh, the saying goes like keep that keep that same energy you know how you hear it he feels like yeah, keep yeah. that same yeah. energy um well i would have um, uh, greater energy telling the and feed- the negative feedback than I would the positive. All no, right, okay. <laughs> like keep the same energy <laughs> when yeah, you give yeah, positive yeah. energy. So, uh, for example, I would say I would have like you can see that that scowl a little bit, like mm, something's wrong, and you, you you finally approach him like, hey, look you need I uh, I saw this, and you know just make sure you do this. And by the way, this is and then, and then whenever it was good, I would go. You did a good job. Keep it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I would, pat I would on, mean pat both. On little Timmy's head. You know, good right. job, Timmy. Yeah. It, was, it was. I would mean both. But like, uh, how would you describe it, Garrett?
2: <laughs> no, I mean you would. Yes, it's not that you didn't mean that they did a good job, but kind of alluding to what Jared said, you weren't as like direct with. The positive mm. feedback, like it was more general, maybe so you could probably do
1: better. Right, right. If the like positive specific. feedback is general, but the negative feedback is specific, the oh, person will, really? like only really the person will interpret the feedback as being right. meaningful the more specific it is,
0: right. and mm-hmm. not and so meaningful
1: was, the less specific it is.
0: So I was placing more importance on the negative because of how simply by specific, being specific. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, right, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. No, that's because
1: because I, I I can look at Carrie and say Carrie, I really like the way you did your eyebrows today. I mean that's super specific. Right. right. But if I said, hey Carrie, you look great today. She's like, oh, what okay, great, oh, thanks. Right. Like you know, okay. Like, there's yeah. nothing. There's nothing there, right? Right. But if I guess. say if I say if I say something like, you know, Carrie, you look great today, but I really don't like the way you did your eyebrows. It's like the that completely destroyed my compliment. Because of yeah. how mm-hmm. specific, I can't even see your eyebrows, by the way, but of how specific <laughs> the negative feedback was. It's like, holy shit, you paid attention to that minutia of detail so much that it must have really sucked. And all you can muster is a good job on the things that you think I'm doing well. It comes across as lip service, even if it's not, mm-hmm. even if you're actually telling you the no, person.
2: Like, I think it also gives you no ability to know like, how to do well again, right? So like most people, right, they want right. to do well, right? So if you just say, like even same thing with even looking, right? Like oh well, you look good today, but like what? How do I look? Like what do you mean? Like how I can't unless I'm wearing this exact same thing. I do my hair the exact same way every single day. Like how do I know what you think looks mm-hmm. good, right?
1: Right, right. The person doesn't know how to please you essentially, and I you know this is this is this is not just you know team building one hundred one parenting one hundred one. I
0: mean like marriage one-on-one marriage one-on-one I just took a note I do say you look good but I'll never say how and when. sometimes all right yeah Yeah. Yeah.
1: a hundred percent I mean I I really think this is just a human nature thing right okay that that really helps us when we have a heart therapist and we're trying to get them better skills clinical skills because we don't really have to teach the heart therapist how to care like that's that's they care already Oftentimes they care too much sometimes, which actually can actually be a whole other issue. But now let's, let's flip the script. Now we've got a head therapist, right? Like someone hired you or me. And, and now you've got to get us to actually embrace the soft skills, to embrace the concept that it matters how you greet somebody. It matters how you shake their hand. It matters whether you look them in the eye. It matters if you look at your watch while they're talking. It, it, it matters if you make sure they're comfortable on the table before you start your technique. It matters that you keep communication. Like all of these things are so difficult to teach. And the worst example that I've ever had of this, and I, again, I won't, I won't call anybody out by name, but I hired a therapist who had five years of experience and I was paying him. If, I, if memory serves, it was 90, 90 grand or more. And it was because this person had a lot of experience they were bringing to the table. Um, and it didn't work out at all. And the, the moment that I realized that, that, it, that it didn't work out, and here, here was the moment. This person was was treating a patient. and The table that they were treating on was, was next to mine. They were treating a patient. It was a young uh, female. I think this person had a hamstring injury because the patient was prone on the table the therapist was working on this patient's hamstring and chatting away with everybody else in the clinic but the patient. And the patient was crying because of the pressure that this clinician was (laughs) using. (laughs) And the clinician, the the therapist, never noticed. And I, I, I think it was the front desk person who saw the patient crying, caught my eye. I looked at the patient, saw that the patient was crying. And I looked at the therapist, got the therapist's attention. And I, and I pointed to the patient. And I said, she's crying. To, to get him to stop whatever he was doing and check in, for fuck's sake, with with <laughs> the patient. Th- this was probably one of the headiest head therapists I've ever hired. And I think was the last one. Um, and... And not again, it's not to criticize this person as a clinician. This, this was almost had nothing to do with the technique that he was using. I mean, it could have been the best fucking hamstring release on the planet, but it didn't make a difference because he was completely losing the trust of the patient in that moment by being disconnected from them emotionally. And so then the question is, okay, now you've identified that you've hired a head therapist because that was the right hire for you. How do you then... Get the head therapist to, to pay attention to all of these soft details that establish the relationship that that is the foundation of trust between the clinician and the patient. And what do you say to them? What do you because there's no course you can send them to. It's not as easy as here, here's the con ed course you need to go to. Because it's so much more to do with who and how that person behaves in life and how they view relationships as a whole and what's important.
0: Jared, this is the hard part because I think for you, for, for myself and um, just due to the fact that I think you and I are able to turn it on, right? Like yeah, we, you we have this have like, charisma, ability right? to, to, to really still be a head therapist chasing results. And getting the satisfaction of getting results while the patient believes that the results were all based on their goals right like it's a way that you're able to say you know like create the communication the connection where we we both get what we want results from you know like the satisfaction of solving the problem and they get the outcomes that they're looking for all the while, they, we developed this relationship with them, um, which makes them feel like they were the main – like we, we were heart therapists. It's, a, it's like an illusion almost. that we, it, we, it is we,
1: an we, illusion. Like the, right. Your patients love you, not just the results. Right. right. I, I, and and it's indistinguishable to them that you're caring right. more about the results. Not that yeah. you don't care about your patients as humans, but I'm just saying you're focused on the outcomes, and, and, and they can't tell. Because you have, that's what makes, that's what makes you, that, that's part of what makes you who you are as a clinician and as skilled as you are. I, I, I would, I would venture to say you'd agree with me if I were to say the following. If you didn't have that ability, you wouldn't be as good as you are.
0: Right. Correct. Correct. Because you I, couldn't,
2: you don't have the opportunity. Correct. The patient doesn't come back.
0: Right. Correct. Right. Like, yes, we we have been able to probably you and I at the same time use charisma to buy time to still get the results that they are looking for. That we wouldn't necessarily get that if we didn't have the charisma, like just only a head therapist, because they're like, man, did this person not listening to me. Forget this. You know, I'm, I'm moving on. I don't feel heard, you know, and I'm not getting better. <laughs> Why am I still hanging around? You know, so um, but the answer go back to answering your question, I think when I think about it here on the fly, I I, I would try to break it down in terms that they really value, which is trying to still get results, right? So I do believe that an above average clinician will be able to get 80% of the patients better. I do believe that. Mm -hmm. Eight out of 10, that would come. But to get from eight out of 10 to nine out of 10 requires your ability to connect with the patient, whether it's communication, uh, for the for the, for the, uh, elusive, the elusive types of patients that are chronic and separate, you know, like those, those conditions where they don't get better, they go to all these other clinicians and they're still not getting better. The, the ability to communicate, patient education you know, finds empathy and slowing down your thought process as a problem solver and really taking into, uh, really taking the opportunity to learn what are their fears, what are their concerns, like how to really penetrate those type of things that are barriers to them getting better is what's going to bring you to, to get nine out of 10 better. Right. And if I'm I can a- have that conversation and dialogue, then you start to talk about the comprehensive approach as a clinician, as as opposed to X's and O's clinician. Head I, I, head could,
1: head. I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I'm going to say it a little bit differently just to reinforce. Yes. It's a logarithmic scale, which is to say that the closer you get to 100%, the harder and harder and harder it gets, right? So that to get... If you can get one out of 10 people better, everybody can do that. Even non-clinicians can do that. To get to four or five out of 10, it's still easy. And every notch up you go, it is not one level harder. So to go from six to seven might be five levels harder to go from seven to eight might be 50 levels harder to go from eight to nine is 500 times harder. And to go from nine to 10 is like 5,000 times or whatever, however logarithmic scales work. But in a sense it gets harder and harder and harder. The closer you get to being really, really, really good. And I think a lot of people accept, Oh, I can get eight out of 10 better. I can get seven out of that's good enough for me. Mm-hmm. They never really try to push themselves to nine, because to get from eight to go from five to six to seven, no problem. To get from eight to nine, that's struggle. To get from more than, I mean, to get any higher than that, it's it's really hard. And it mm-hmm. and as you so so cleverly pointed out, it's almost got nothing to do with your clinical skills that's at right. that point in time. Right, that last bit has very little to do with how many con ed courses you've taken.
2: Right. Well, it's true. Like if I list the people on my hand that Leon hasn't gotten better it's like the ones that are extremely anxious like you know the ones that have all that other <laughs> stuff that tied to the it emotional,
1: right the emotional yeah. baggage <laughs>
2: and it's not Where like Leah, you can't get Leah's any of them like, better but those just, ones that are like up here those are the ones like yeah,
0: right i like, was right.
1: like i just i can't with this person oh <laughs> man just,
0: this gets so funny like, right. i did all the listening
1: i can do yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. listen you know what listen i i, I know I, I think you need pool therapy <laughs> like, <laughs> But we don't provide that here. <laughs> we don't provide right, that the... here. See the front desk? I'm going to give you a list of pools in the area.
0: <laughs> oh, Jerry. It, it kills me. It's the patients that feel like, you know, they. it's the patient that I never forget, man. She said, wait. I said, how do you feel? She said, wait. You know, She was looking for the pain that she usually would feel, and she was dumbfounded that she didn't have. She said, I really have no pain. Wait. Wait. I can't believe. It. Wait. It's 0.5. The point, the point five, she found, she said point five because she could not accept the fact that her new norm could be no pain, right? Yeah. And so a point five patient on a scale of zero to 10 is someone that I won't get better because at that point, that's my breaking point. I've lost it, Jared. I, I've lost it. Like, I can't, there's no way that I'm going any more than that, right? Like, any lessons? I, uh, I
1: could just, I literally, I literally just like kind of like this vision of you in the clinic, like just fucking flipping out, like an right patient. Like, <laughs> Point like five. just like kicking them out of the clinic. Just be like, you're, you're, you're done. You're, 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 you're leaving now.
0: Because like, I'll just I'll fall back on my life. I don't think this is going to, this is a good fit. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so, but yeah, so that, that, that's your, like, now, that's your, that's nothing that so, to do with clinical That's sales. like, you're getting 9.5%. Out of 10 better like you you are like you are that good where like you have that that ability to still hang yeah, in yeah. there patience but to me like you mentioned man it's just such a it's such a massive jump to go from eight to nine and mm-hmm. if you're a head therapist then you have to take a step back and understand that there's other variables that have nothing to do with the X and those oh
1: hundred percent. And I'll tell you where the head therapists are going for the, for the education on this. Can you, I'll see if you, see, can you guess what I'm thinking? They're going but to like, Con Ed. Where are pain they going? Science? You got it. Right. Pain science. You right. got it. They, they think that, 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 that eight to nine. still make it night, a science. It's pain <laughs> science. Yeah. We still <laughs> got to make it a science. If it's not a science, we're not going to do it because there needs right. to be evidence. This is evidence, evidence evidence-based emotional (laughs) communication. Like, what are you talking about? Like, (laughs) no, like there's, there's nothing, there's nothing there. There's nothing there (laughs) that, that is the the last missing piece that you need. Like there just isn't. personal skills. Shut up, have empathy and (laughs) listen. (laughs) You know, you you end up just taking your shitty communication skills and just executing a new treatment that they just call pain science. It's just not how it works. And, you know, Carrie probably knows... If if Carrie never took a pain science course in her entire life, she probably knows more about how to manage (laughs) the science of pain than someone who's a 100% head therapist that took a pain science course. Because Mm -hmm. Carrie's patients are going to have that emotional openness in the right. interaction which will let their pain dissipate through the positivity of the interaction which is so much more powerful than learning how to do active listening and comparing people's you know brain to some sort of like pain meeting that they're having <laughs> all Let that stuff is important for like, point like trust me seconds. like i study pain science like i understand it inside and out and i also understand that the limitations are that you can't give a script to a head therapist and expect good outcomes right all right so which brings us back to the question <laughs> is what do you do help. you still got to take this person and you have to basically help them so i mean i'll give you my perspective on it. i don't know what it's worth but I will say that, that I mean, obviously you, you, you shouldn't be hiring people just first and foremost that are 100% head. They, they have to be able to turn on the heart component even if, it's, even if they're putting it on like you and I. And I say putting on, I don't mean faking it. I mean turning it on like a switch and being able to turn it off. You and I do not bring our heart with us Like, when the day's over, the day's over. It's like, I I just want to be... I mean, I don't know about you, but I think you're... If memory serves, we've had this conversation, and you're an introvert like I am. And it's like, you know, we're not going to go get energy by being social. I mean, that's just not our thing, right? So when we turn it off, we turn it off. We just want to be quiet in our house and just hang out with our family and, you know, like just... Just, we don't, we don't then want to talk about social, maybe
2: right? the only thing that doesn't turn off is talking about maybe why you didn't get
1: the results you want. Today. Right, right, right. <laughs> He's going to talk more about, yeah, exactly. Why couldn't I help that person today? So, uh, yeah, I mean, so, so it's not something that we like take with us. So the ability to turn it on and turn it off is what you're looking for in the hiring process. So I've shared this with you guys before, which is, uh, I do two soft skill challenges in my interview, Right. And I'll just share with the listeners what one of them is now. So the interviewee gets a hard skills test. But this is, by the way, after they've passed several layers, right? So they've done an online uh, uh, form that they filled out. They've had a phone interview with the front desk person. They pass that interview. They come in for an actual in-person interview, right? The hard skills test is they actually have to diagnose and treat somebody in the clinic, so usually it's an aide or somebody, and it's okay. Look, this person actually has shoulder pain. I'd like you to do an assessment and treatment on this person. So you watch the hard skills, and of course you're assessing soft skills at the same time. And then I actually run a soft skills challenge. And so the soft skills uh, challenge is something like this: um, you're, you've been treating a patient, and you did you did the uh, you did the exam with them. You saw them for one treatment session. This, this patient's name is Sally. It's a 67-year-old uh, a female. That has stenosis and you did the first treatment oh no it's a cervical stenosis you did the first treatment with them it's now the second treatment sally comes into the clinic she walks right up to the front desk and she asks to cancel all of her appointments and she says she's been in horrible pain since the first treatment she's got pain radiating down her arm she feels terrible and she wants to cancel all of her appointments and being a good front desk person the front desk person comes back to you as the therapist and says listen Uh, Steve, I I have Sally at the front desk and she's extremely upset. She wants to cancel all of her appointments. Could you come up and, and talk to her? And you as the therapist go up to talk to Sally. That's the scenario. I'm Sally. Go. And the therapist needs to then deal with the problem. And how do they deal with the problem? Okay, so how do most head therapists deal with that problem? Most head therapists deal with that problem by trying to solve Sally's problem, because that's what head (laughs) therapists do. So they say, Sally, where's your pain? How much pain are you in? Well, you have to be able to deal with some amount of pain when you're doing rehabilitation. They start educating, 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 and teaching Sally all about pain science. That's what the head (laughs) therapist does. And then to me, that's an epic fail. And I say to the, I say to the person who's being interviewed, because I don't mind if they get it wrong the first time, I say, listen, let me ask you a question. You know, in an interview, you can't ask somebody if they're married. You're not allowed to do that. So I say, listen, I'm sure at some point in time, you've had a significant other. That's how I say it. And the person usually says, oh, yes, I'm married, or I have a boyfriend or girlfriend. They volunteer the information, which is fine. So I say, okay, at some point in time, you've had a significant other. Let me ask you a question. When that person and let's say I'm talking to a male therapist. I say, I say when, when that person comes to you and they're they're, they're they're terribly upset about something that you did or didn't do, and they're extremely upset. Let's say your girlfriend comes up to you and she's very, very unhappy with something that you did. Or maybe you didn't even do it, but she thinks you did it. And the first thing that you do is try to solve her problem. How well does that go? And the therapist usually gets this right and says, not, not well. And I'm like, exactly. Well, guess what? That's exactly what you just did to Sally. How do you think she's going to (laughs) feel? And the therapist has a a light bulb moment and they say, yeah, yeah, I can see how that's not going to go well. And I say, if this was your girlfriend coming up to you and she was very upset, what would you do first? And the therapist usually figures it out and they say, well, I would listen. And I would say, how, how long would you listen for? And they would say something like, well, as long as it takes. I say, well, how do you know that she's done talking? And then you, you have a conversation with the therapist to help them to understand that they are successful in their life at being a heart. With somebody, somebody in their life they are successful with, whether it's their spouse, a brother, a sister, a parent, a child, whoever it is, You find the most successful relationship that they have you say to them if the interaction that you were having with your patient wasn't your patient and it was this other person in your life how would you deal with the situation and what would you do the therapist then starts to extrapolate their experience in areas where they were successful and they realize oh I would listen and then I would reflect and then I would probably ask the other person how they want to solve the problem. And I say, yes, exactly. Now let's run it again, do that with Sally. And they run it again and some of them get it right. And they say, Sally, tell me more about why you're upset. Is there anything else? Is there anything else? Sally, what are you afraid of? What are you concerned about? Sally, how do you want to solve this problem together? And they kind of extrapolate from areas that they're successful in life and where they've been a heart uh, person to the therapeutic interaction. Individuals that can successfully do that, where you can successfully identify where they have been good in their life at establishing positive um, joint relationships, whereby you are communicating in a way where you're acting as a team and solving problems together. If they can identify that and if they can take that experience into the clinic and learn how to see patients, not as patients, not as somebody who's subservient to them, but as somebody who is their equal, who that they have a relationship with that must be fostered, those people, those head therapists, I think end up being successful in the heart domain. And I have found that head therapists that seem to have a block whereby they're incapable of doing that will never learn how to do it. And I think that ultimately is the key, is that you can't teach them how to have a heart. You have to find areas in their life where they already have a heart, and they have to learn how to bring the emotional skill with them when they come to work. And that's my, that's my feeling on it.
0: I agree. No, I, I remember you telling me that story about Sally, and I think you may have had me role play it, and um, I got probably it wrong. did.
1: I <laughs> think we did. I think we did. I think you fucked it up, and then I right. and then I told you. I think you, you, you gave like, me oh, negative right.
0: feedback too, right? I think you,
1: <laughs> Well, hopefully, I couched it in positive feedback, although it wouldn't have you mattered.
0: You did. You found a good way. You gave me like I think you gave me two for one. Like two two <laughs> um good and one and then um, but all I've listened to I was like, the I bad. I like
1: calling it that the two for one, two pieces. Two for, for one. <laughs> <bad people. laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Performance Doc Academy podcast. Make sure to head over to www.performancedocacademy.com where you can learn everything that you need to know about how to start, grow, and eventually sell your very own physical therapy practice. We are going to teach you step by step. It is all of the information and knowledge that we wish that we had when we started out in our own practices, and this is going to save you thousands and thousands of of dollars in mistakes. Head over to www.performancedocacademy.com. We'll see you there.